following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right, let's turn to First Chronicles, please. We're in First Chronicles in chapter 21. It's the census this time. First Chronicles 21. Mm-hmm. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and to the leaders of the people, Go, number Israel from Beersheba to Dan, that is from the south to the far north, and bring the number of them to me, that I may know it. And Joab answered, May the Lord make his people a hundred times more than they are. But my lord the king, are they not all my lord's servants? Why then does my lord require this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt in Israel? Now, you may read verses 1 and 2 and wonder, is there anything wrong with that? Uh, We find out by verse 3 that there's somebody who's a dissenting voice who's saying, look, you shouldn't do this, not a good idea. It was done out of pride, that I may know it. Curiosity and pride of what the strength of his forces were. Nevertheless, verse 4 says, The king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to David. All Israel had 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and Judah had 470,000 men who drew the sword. But he did not count Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. And God was displeased with his, this thing, therefore he struck Israel. So not only was Joab a dissenting voice, but God himself was displeased as well. So David said to God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing, but now I pray, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. So now even David recognizes that he's done wrong and is unhappy with himself, certainly. Then the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, his prophet, saying, go and tell David saying, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, choose for yourself either three years of famine or three months to be defeated by your foes with the sword of your enemies overtaking you, or else for three days the sword of the Lord. The plague in the land with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now consider what answer I should take back to him who sent me. Obviously, none of the three are very palatable uh, options, are they? And uh, this is a troubling passage to many, to me as well. Uh, Think of David's sin, the leader's sin having a deep impact on the people of the nation as a whole. Verse 13, And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. What he's saying is, I don't want the first two options. I'll take the third. I want to be in the the hands of God, not in the hands of of men. Uh, Well, I guess actually you could say the second one was off the table. So God could have chosen the, the first or the third. But uh, God says in 14, the Lord sent a plague upon Israel and 70,000 men of Israel fell. So obviously then God took the second one off the table, put the third one into uh, action, and this is, what, this is what the people of Israel suffered, many people dying. 
And God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. And as he was destroying, the Lord looked and relented of the disaster and said to the angel who was destroying, It is enough, now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Then David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, having in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. So David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell on their faces. And David said to God, Was it not I who commanded the people to be numbered? I am the one who has sinned and done evil indeed. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, O Lord my God, be against me and my father's house, but not against your people, that they should be plagued. Therefore the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at the word of Gad, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan turned and saw the angel and his four sons who were with him hid themselves, but Ornan continued threshing wheat. So David came to Ornan, and Ornan looked and saw David. And he went out from the threshing floor and bowed before David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, Grant me the place of this threshing floor, that I may build an altar on it to the Lord. You shall grant it to me at the full price, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. But Ornan said to David, Take it to yourself, and let my lord the king do what is good in his eyes. Look, I also give you the oxen for burnt offerings, the threshing implements for wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I give it all. Then King David said to Ornan, No, but I will surely buy it for the full price, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord, and nor offer burnt offerings with that which costs me nothing. So David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the place. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And he answered him from heaven by fire on the altar of burnt offering. So the angel, sorry, so the Lord commanded the angel, and he returned his sword to its sheath. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord and the altar of burnt offering, which Moses had made in the wilderness, were at that time at the high place in Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord, as well he should be for his prideful sin over the nation. Okay, well, we leave First Chronicles for now until next time. Pause and turn our Bibles to Matthew 13. Um, we uh, have a number of families out tonight, including, uh, as it happens, all the families who uh, have small children, so Truth Trackers is going to be on pause uh, for this time around, and we'll bring it back the next time that... Uh, we have a group that can participate. Matthew chapter 13, please. We've now completed the section of the Gospel of Matthew where the Lord's opponents have made clear that they are not going to bow to him. They're not going to submit to him. They're not going to believe in him. They're not going to listen to him. They're not going to repent of their sins or, or trust in God their trust in their own ways. And so there's a new phase opening now in the book of Matthew. So if you, if you can, just keep that in mind as you read Matthew. There's the introduction of the king, Matthew 1 and 2, his, uh, the initiation into his public ministry with baptism, with the temptation, and then his early teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, his 
confirmatory miracles or authenticating miracles in chapters 8, 9, 10, his further teaching, sending out the disciples to uh, carry out their uh, work uh, for him and the the instructions that he gave to them. Uh, John the Baptist being uh, imprisoned as kind of a a precursor, if you will, to the persecution that Jesus himself would face. And now we turn to chapter 13 after the Pharisees have committed the unpardonable sin and have totally rejected Jesus. Even his family didn't believe in him, sadly. And so the Lord then goes out on the same day in which he had finished the, uh, the uh, kind of interaction with these Pharisees and so on. He goes out and sat by the sea, it says in verse number 1. And a great multitude was gathered together to him so that he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. So picture in your mind that setup, how special that would have been for those standing and sitting on the shore of the sea and waiting for the teaching to come uh, resonating across the lapping waves on the shore, uh, a good place for him to be because the voice would carry well in that environment and he would teach the people. Now he taught them, well as before, he taught them as one who has authority, but he taught them in now verse 3, parables. He taught them in parables. Now we already saw the Lord had kind of we could say dipped his toe into this teaching methodology because in chapter 12, verses 43 to 45, you remember he talked about an unclean spirit going out and finding seven other worse ones and coming back in. And it was a story not really about a man, but about the nation of Israel. So he was teaching a parable. A parable is a story with a point. is the most simple definition I guess you can come up with, a story with a lesson. Um, not really a fable, although a fable similarly tries to teach a lesson. It's a little bit of a longer thing, and uh, usually we think of a fable as kind of being kind of fantastic, if you will, you know, like a really imaginary kind of story um, and that sort of thing. But here, the parable is not that. It's a, a, a true-to-life kind of situation, and it, it teaches a lesson. Now, we're going to find out in the next segment from where we're at what parables, why parables and what they're about, but he begins to teach in parables, and I'll just summarize the purpose of them, and we'll look at it later, to do two things. One is to reveal truth to those who are seeking it, and two, to conceal truth from those who hate it. So to reveal it and conceal it, we've said that many times Actually, you might not remember, but it seems to me like yesterday I preached a series through all the parables of the Lord. Do you remember that? That was five years ago. Can you believe that? Five years ago that I preached a series through all 40-some-odd parables of the Lord. And, of course, we had to spend a good deal of time in Matthew 13 when we did that. So this will be review for some of you, but new for others. And so he teaches in parables, and the parables have to do with one main subject matter. And that main subject matter is given in verse number 11, if you drop down there and look at it. 
they, the disciples, that is, came and said, well, why are you speaking in parables now? That's just going to confuse people even more, basically. You know, what are you doing? And he answered and said to them in verse 11, because it has been given to you to know, and here it is, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. The mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. This information has been given to you to know it. I'm going to explain it in parable form, and then oftentimes also explain the parables to the disciples. And for our benefit, we'll see that explained in verses 18 through 23, um, so that they could understand mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Now, remember, before we even get into the parable here, I want to just touch on what this is about, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is a nickname for the kingdom of the God of heaven. Okay, Sometimes it's called the kingdom of God. Sometimes it's called the kingdom of heaven. But that's because it's the kingdom of the God of heaven. It's the kingdom that comes down from heaven. It's the kingdom that comes from God. It's the kingdom that will be established by God. It will be ruled by Christ. Uh, In fact, in the hymn that we sang just at the end there, which was 508, notice what it says. Did you notice it says, um, For Christ's coming kingdom are you sighing. I thought that was uh, a nice little segue into the message. We're talking about the coming kingdom, the kingdom that is coming. It's called the kingdom of the God of heaven. It is not here. It is not now. It is not present Uh, Anybody with a clear-eyed view of things ought to be able to see that we are not living in the kingdom of God on earth right now. Uh, Why can I say that with such certainty? Well, if you go back to the Old Testament and look at what the kingdom of God is going to look like, the material and physical prosperity, the the spiritual prosperity of Israel particularly, um, and the governance of the world under the Messiah, you know, God reigning. We don't see anything like that today, okay? Don't kid yourselves. Don't think that, you know, you, you, you're smarter and you see something that doesn't, that's not there. The church is a minority. It's never going to be, uh, on its own power, a majority. It's never going to run the government. Uh, and it ought not because its ministry, its mission is the Great Commission, not governance. And so people get all turned around and confused about this. Unfortunately, it leads to all kinds of problematic interpretations of the Bible and problematic approaches to missions and and a lot of disappointment too, I think. People looking for the kingdom of God to come or the church to establish it or uh, to be it itself. And then there's so many different churches and splits and different things like that. Uh, The church today has no governance role, but the the kingdom of, of, of the God of heaven will be a worldwide government. We see nothing like that today. So we're not in the kingdom. That is, a, I think, a troubling idea to many people because they have been so conditioned to think that we're in the kingdom today or that the kingdom is in them. If you have any questions about this, please feel free to, to, to ask me about them so I can you know help you with those. But... It's the, the Bible's clear teaching that the kingdom is something that we're looking forward to come in the future. It's going to come from heaven. It's, it's the kingdom of God. 
And the people in Jesus' time were also looking for this kingdom. They were hoping it to come. They thought Jesus was going to bring it. Uh, He was offering himself as king. The kingdom of God is at hand. He said, John the Baptist said the same thing. But later on, we'll see that he said, well, now the kingdom of God is taken away from you. It will be given to a nation that bears the fruits of it. So the kingdom of God will be taken away from them. It was taken away from them, and it was postponed until the Lord Jesus comes. Uh, This is taught throughout the New Testament. Uh, Paul says, through many tribulations, we must enter into the kingdom of God. An entrance will be supplied richly into the kingdom of God, Peter says, and numerous other texts of Scripture that promise that kingdom. In fact, Revelation 20, uh, verses 11 through, uh, no, not 11, 1 through 10, talk about a kingdom where Christ reigns for a thousand years, and that's what we're talking about here. That will be the case. But the mysteries are, okay, so Lord, you've said the kingdom is coming, Uh, it's, it's, it's at hand, you're here, you're the king. Um, but now things aren't going quite as we had hoped. People are rejecting you. The Pharisees, the leaders of Israel, the scribes, the Sadducees don't want anything to do with you. Uh, What's going to happen now? What's going to happen now? So the Lord gives a number of parables that that will describe an intermediate age between where they're at at that time and when the kingdom will actually arrive on the earth, and that intermediate age is what we call the church era, the church age. That's where we are now. And in that age, there's going to be certain things going on related to the kingdom, but not uh, directly implementing it. And that's what the mysteries are all about. It's not just one mystery, but there's several different things he's going to reveal in these parables. But the main idea is that... uh, The program is going to shift. It's going to shift away from a Jewish center to a Gentile center. It's going to shift away from a kingdom center to a church center. And God is going to begin to call out for his namesake, a people from among the Gentiles. So his his focus will not be upon the Jewish nation uh, then going forward. So this is the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Some have suggested that the mystery is the kingdom is going to entirely change its form, and it's going to be, instead of what the, new, the Old Testament predicted, a new government, a worldwide government, Israel at the head of the nations, Israel prospering, the nations bringing their wealth to Israel, and so on. Instead of that, the form of the kingdom is going to change, and it's going to become a spiritual kingdom in your heart. But that is unsustainable from the text of Scripture. You have Unless you go from a physical kingdom to a in-your-heart spiritual kingdom and then back to a physical kingdom later on in, in Revelation 20 and elsewhere, which really does a lot of damage to the text of Scripture, the teaching of it. Instead of making that kind of spiritualized transition and coming back to a literal kingdom, what we need to do is just see the Scriptures as teaching a literal kingdom straight through and figuring out our relationship to that. So instead of the form morphing, this kingdom morphing in form into something entirely different than what it was before. Rather than that, what Jesus is telling us is that the fate of the kingdom is different now. Not the morphe, not the form, but the timing and the circumstances surrounding it 
are going to be different than what we had expected. You know what the disciples, many of them expected? Well, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You remember that from the book of Acts? And Jesus said, look, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. What, 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 is, what was it for them to know? Well, they were to be witnesses you know, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. They were to testify of Jesus and his death and resurrection, just like we do today. And, uh, and propagate that message, message throughout the world. Now, the big picture is that God has a nation that's going to be at the head of that kingdom. It's Israel. He has a people called Israel. But he also has a people called the church. And the church are going to be those who reign with Christ over this kingdom. And so he's calling out people such as yourself. Believe it or not, if you're a Christian here listening, you will reign with Christ during that millennial kingdom during that 1,000-year reign of God on the earth. And so that's what God is doing. It's not like a departure from the program of the kingdom. It's another phase of it. It's a phase that builds upon what we had uh, before with Israel. Uh, This is an Israel-centered kingdom, but it's also going to be a church-centered kingdom in the sense that the church is going to reign with Christ for all this uh, in this future kingdom for all those years. So that's the basic outline of what the Lord is doing. And one of the features of that kingdom is, is that in calling out a people to, to uh, follow the king, there will be a time of preaching, a time of proclamation, and some will respond and some will not respond. And it's interesting to me that when you look at this, you, the focus of, the, of the, the, the person who is proclaiming the word is to just simply do that, proclaim the word, and allow it to have the fruit that it's going to have and the fruit that it's going to produce under God's, you know, kind of increase generating work by His Spirit, and leave it at that. Some people think of the kingdom of God as operated today by the church as the church has to enforce upon uh, the people the right beliefs, the right practices, and even do so by the power of the sword. Now, today, that's not so much the case here in the United States, not, not really at all, but it was back in the Middle Ages. You know, the church and the government kind of fused into one, and if you didn't believe like the state church, what happened to you? Burn at the stake, beheaded. You don't see that here. That is a radical departure from New Testament teaching. It's a very confused uh, situation. Oh, wow, look at who's here. That's great. They must be coming for their, from their, uh, where they were visiting tonight. Wow, that's good. Glad that they could come. Um, so, in, uh, chap- back to chapter 13. This parable is the parable of the, well, this is called the parable of the sower in my Bible. But I wonder about that. I've actually called it something different. The parable is given in all three Gospels. When I say three Gospels, I know there's four, but these are the three synoptic Gospels that I'm talking about, not the Gospel of John, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's given in all three synoptics, along with an explanation. So if the Lord gives, if the Lord sees fit to inspire this text three times, you think we should pay attention? (laughs) Yeah, he's repeating himself not to be repetitive, but for a reason. So how do we title this parable? We read it a few times and we think, hmm, 
So this parable, let's, let's read it, and then you tell me what you think the title should be. It says, On the same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. Great multitudes were gathered, verse 2. So he got in a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, and here's the first parable, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, drop down to verse 18. We just read, let him hear. Let him hear who has ears. Well, verse 18 says, therefore, hear the parable of the sower. Listen up. Verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. But he who received seed on stony, the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. In my view, there's really no point in in, um, studying verses 1 through 9 without studying verses uh, 18 through 23. Um, You know, you can kind of say, well, let me just just look at 1 through 9 and kind of puzzle through this thing myself, you know, and just kind of figure it out and work through it and and you come up with something and then, you know, you start reading 18 to 23 and maybe you find out you got some parts right and you got some parts wrong and all that. Just forget about all that. Just take it all together. It's all revealed here for us. You can make the correlation and connections there with what the Lord is teaching. We thank God that he's given us the explanation so we're not left to, to uh, our own devices. Because I tell you, if we were left to our own devices, we would come up with about as many explanations as there are interpreters of the scriptures. The, you know, people would go too far, people wouldn't go far enough in their explanation of this parable. So what is the right title for this section? Is it the parable of the sower or something else? What do you think? And we have one vote for the parable of the soils. It's pretty good, Dan, pretty good. Yeah, I take it to be the parable of the soils. Um, Who is the sower? Who's the sower? Does it say in the explanation? It doesn't really say, does it? Let's dig in. Think about it for a moment. So I think it's the soils. The point is the different qualities of the soil and the responses and fruitfulness of them. There are four soils, and there are four things that happen in the soils. 
This comes out clearly as you outline the parable and, and its explanation. So remember, we're talking about the mysteries of the kingdom of the God of heaven. Here's something that's going to be happening and in, in really in preparation for the coming kingdom. Uh, there's, the, there's the soils, there's the sower, there's the seed that is sown, and of course there's Satan, the adversary, and then there's the fruit that comes out in the end of the, of the good soil. So we need to look at each of these aspects and just think about them for a moment. My first question was, who is the sower? Who is the sower? Well, we would probably immediately say, well, the Son of Man is the sower and uh, the, the Lord. And I think we would agree that he is the main and the best planter of seed. But uh, the prophets before him were kind of sowers, weren't they? They proclaimed the message of the kingdom. And also their message was not often well received as, as illustrated by what main Bible character that came before Jesus in the New Testament, John the Baptist. He sowed the seed also. What was his, his particular emphasis on seed sowing was on the message of repentance, which is part of the overall seed, the overall message. We'll look at what the seed is in a moment. He was a prophet, in fact, more than a prophet, John was, but he was not well received. Um, you know, he cast seed on the soil of Herod uh, the king, and uh, what kind of soil was Herod? He was a very hard soil. In fact, he turned on John and put him in prison. Eventually, John was murdered for his seed-sowing activity, proclamation of the truth. Uh, after Christ, though, so we have before Christ, John the Baptist. Before him, the prophets were sowers. And Christ was a sower of the seed, but after him... All the apostles, New Testament prophets, pastors, evangelists, teachers are also. I don't think then the point is to focus on the identity of the sower. It is anyone who is proclaiming the truth of God's word. Any Christian, everyday Christians are sowers. Keep that in mind. Jesus used a farming illustration to uh, teach his point. And the reality is anybody can be a farmer if they put their mind to it. You all can dig in the dirt and sow seed and water it and weed it and watch it grow and harvest it and all of that. He used a very common everyday illustration to talk to everyday people about this thing, about sowing the the seed, the Word of God. It does not take a degree from college to plant seed few basic steps, some common sense, some water and diligence will get the grass seed growing or the plants in the garden in a couple of weeks. But you don't have to have special training either to be a witness for Jesus Christ. You can spread the message and, and you must for the sake of the name of Christ, for the sake of the lost, for the sake of growing and strengthening the church and for eternal reward as well. This is some of the fruit of Paul's labor that he talked about in Philippians as we discussed this morning. What does the parable tell us about how the sower does his work? The sower plants the seed liberally, even on soils that might not look promising initially. Now, in real farming, you don't throw seed on the sidewalk. It's not going to do much. You don't throw seed on the trampled down places where um, you know people walk and or where you plan to have walkways in your garden you don't plant seed there because you're just going to trample it down and it won't end up growing you'll kill it 
but some inevitably does fall in places where it won't produce anything or it's trampled or choked by weeds. And think of guys that have big farming operations today. They're pulling a huge, wide planting machine behind their tractor, and they just go, you know, up and down and back and forth, and they miss the corners of the field because their machine is, is uh, you know, and their turning radius isn't quite able to get into the very corners of the field, and uh, they, you know, end up dropping some seed on the driveway where they go in and all of that, and it's not going to grow. We try to minimize that, of course. But in spiritual farming, you know what I mean by spiritual farming? Casting the seed of God's word, we cannot determine the condition of the soil by mere external appearance. In real farming, you can see there's a trampled area, there's rocks, there's thorns, you know, there's a marsh, there's a lowland, a swamp where stuff's not going to grow. But if you try to do that same kind of judgment by appearance in spiritual farming, you're going to express partiality and favoritism, which God does not approve. You simply do not know until some seed is sown, what's going to happen in that person's life. Now, you might, have, you might be able to do this exercise. Make a mental picture in your mind of someone who you think would not respond to the gospel. Okay? You think, you know, somebody that's filled up with tattoos and has, you know, strange hair color and uh, whatever, all kinds of different characteristics you might think. Uh, lifestyle, life situation, uh, how they've expressed their worldview in the past or whatever. But how do you know what's going to happen when you throw the seed of the gospel on that soil, right? You simply don't. Now, they might quickly tell you how they feel about the gospel, and then you know, of course, or at least, you know, after, before they think about it for a while. But the condition of the soil is seen only after you place the seed upon it. That's why we're told to go and preach the gospel to every creature because we don't know if they're hard soil or trampled upon or choked with weeds or thorns or whatever. We simply do not and cannot know that until after we give the seed to them. Well, what is the seed? So that's the sower. What is the seed? The seed represents the word of the kingdom. Look at verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom... And the wicked one comes and snatches it away. So the word of the kingdom is the seed. Uh, the wicked one, Satan, comes and takes away the seed. It's like the birds who came and devour the seeds in verse 4 of chapter 13. Um, I don't make a big deal about this, by the way, but we should note that just because the birds are equal to the wicked one in the language of the parable doesn't mean that every time you see birds, you should think evil. Okay, sometimes birds are just birds. Okay, so we don't go into that, you know, you don't try to dig, dig down so deep you find meaning where there is no meaning intended. It's just an illustration or a parable here. So the word, the seed represents the word of the kingdom, including the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And I think that when you see the word seed here, you should take it in the broadest sense of God's revelation. It's not just you know, some esoteric knowledge about the kingdom, but it's the whole message of the gospel of Jesus, which is the message to which one must respond favorably in order to become a citizen of the kingdom. So it's a general idea, this seed idea. It's not just like, you know, John 3.16 is the seed. 
No, it's not that. It's, it refers to the things that Jesus has been teaching in Matthew 1 through 12 and that Matthew has chosen to write in his gospel. You know, things such as, let me give you some examples of things included in the proclamation of the seed, the word of God, the, the fact that Christ is the Davidic king. Matthew 1 and 2 talks about the birth of the king, doesn't it? It talks about the kingdom of heaven being near. Matthew uh, talks about the need to repent in order to be a citizen of that kingdom. Uh, Matthew's gospel talks about the character and conduct of such repentant uh, kingdom citizens. Where is that found? Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. It talks about the authentication of the kingdom's king through miracles and healing. You know, the guy didn't just come and, and talk like nonsense. He talked the kingdom of God, and then he proved that he was worthy of that title by doing all these amazing miracles, removing demons, controlling nature, raising people from the dead, and so on. He spread the message through the disciples to also pass the word to repent and renewed calls for repentance and gave warnings of judgment in Matthew 11 and 12. So you have this kind of, this is my little summary of the book of Matthew, but what I'm saying is that's the seed. That is the word of the kingdom. By these last chapters, though, it's become apparent that many of his countrymen are not going to accept the kingdom message of repentance. So not only could we say they've, many have committed the unpardonable sin, many are like the soil in which the devil came and took away the seed. Or some were like disciples, it seemed, who received the word of the kingdom and followed Jesus for a little while, but then what? They fell away. They fell away from uh, Jesus. John chapter 6 tells us about some of those who left Jesus and were, followed him no more. That means they were not disciples, truly. They were not followers. So many of them were of that sort that did not receive the word. So we could boil down the idea of the seed as the word of God, which proclaims the king and his kingdom and the participation in the kingdom through repentance. And then it gives instructions about how kingdom citizens should look to be fitting kingdom citizens. Um, now, just a brief note, I've already alluded to some of this, but let me just kind of give it a few points. We have to think carefully about our Lord's message of the kingdom. When you believe in Christ, you immediately become a kingdom citizen. Okay? You're now ready to become a kingdom resident when Christ returns and sets up the kingdom. So you are a citizen, but not a resident of his kingdom right now. Are you with me? Okay. Uh, it's, it's, to me, it's just almost exactly like when you or I travel overseas and we're in another nation. We are citizens of the United States, but we are not at that time resident in the United States. We are displaced because we live in this pre-kingdom world instead of the, in the kingdom per se. And so the Bible in various places talks about us Christians as sojourners, as foreign nationals. We are, our, our citizenship is in, finish the sentence, heaven, not 
on the earth. We're not firstly citizens of the United States of America or of Canada or whatever. We are firstly citizens of, of God's kingdom. But God arranged that we, who are presently expatriates, you know what that term means? Expatriates, we are living outside of our country, our home country, our native country. He has arranged that we should gather into small groups called churches to worship and to pray, to receive instruction, to fellowship together, to propagate the message of the king, and from that gathering called the church to be ambassadors to the world. You see how that political uh, you know, metaphor works so well when you're in a foreign country, you're an ambassador for your home country. You and I need to think about our life here as a life you know, in borrowed space, on borrowed time, with a different citizenship than where we are now. We don't, we don't fit here some way, somehow. You know, we're, we're, we just feel a little bit out of place because we are out of place. Today, the message or the seed has additional information that was not available to these people at that time. What is that additional information? Well, critically, it includes the crucifixion and the resurrection. They didn't know anything about that at this point. This was too early for them to know about that. The disciples were just about to start finding out that Jesus would, I mean, he's alluded to it, you know, the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, but that's a little cryptic for us to think, well, they really got it. You know, they knew the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. No, they didn't, not yet, but they would. And today, the seed of the kingdom message has to include that as well to be complete and to be correct. So we have the sower, anybody who proclaims the message, we have the seed, which is the message of the kingdom, and it's in a broad sense, and the church fits into that kingdom as being future residents, present citizens, but future residents of that kingdom when it comes. It hasn't come yet. And then we have the soil and the fruit, and here we are at the core of the message of the parable. I'll say this, the soil represents the heart of the recipient of preaching, the fruit represents the output or the, light, the, re, the result, the life, conduct, character, and what comes out of the insides of a person. So that's the soil and the fruit. When I say heart, what do I mean by heart? You understand what I mean by heart? Inner life, the, the, the central part of one's being. Okay? That's what heart means in the Bible. It is the central uh, decision-making thinking, desiring peace of what we are as human beings. So the soil is the quality, or the quality of the soil is the quality of the inner man, the inner person, the character of that person. We have to then understand that when the Lord taught earlier this key idea, we have to understand this, that a tree is known by its fruit. Remember we said that, we labored to teach that before. A tree is known by its fruit. And he's going to kind of build on that now and say, well, the, the, tree, the tree or the plant that grows out of soil, if it produces fruit, it's known to be a good and living tree. If it does not produce fruit, there's nothing useful. There's no 
There's no transformation, there's no change in the life of the person, no difference from the pre-saved state. The springing up of a scrawny plant among rocks or thorns is not what Jesus intends to portray as okay. If you've ever done gardening before and you see, you know, you've planted a bunch of plants in a row and several of them are very lush and big and they're producing something and then you've got one kind of at the end of the row or one that's a volunteer over here in the corner from last year and it's just kind of scrawny and it doesn't, it's just, you know, skinny and doesn't have very big leaves and no fruit on it. But you can tell, well, that's a tomato plant or whatever, but it's, it's not amounting to anything. It's just worthy to, to not take up the ground. You just take it out, you cut it down, you bury it, you turn it into compost, or, or else you, you know, begin to fertilize it and try to take care of it and bring it up a little bit better. But with no fruit, there is a bad, bad uh, well, situation with that plant. It's the fruit which shows a person who is truly alive and where God is at work. Don't try to shoehorn into this parable, well, those little plants sprung up, they must be alive. Well, then how do you explain when they wither away? Or that the Lord is not portraying the fruitless ones as good ones. There are four kinds of soil upon which the seed was scattered. What are they? The road, the rocks, the thorns, and so the road, the rocks, the thorns, and the good soil. Many, many interpreters want to say that only the road represents an unsaved person. But if there is no fruit in three of the cases, then how do you distinguish between the first, the road, and the rocks and the thorns as if one is two are good and one is bad? How can you tell uh, the difference? Uh, there really is no difference. By your fruit, you will know them, the Lord said. So if there's no fruit, there's no real life. But actually, when we look at the soils, there are, uh, in a sense, they're not really just four. Hang with me now. There's the road, the rocks, the thorns, and then there's the soil that produces, well, let me do it this way. There's the road, the rocks, and the soil, uh, the, the, and the thorns, the road, the road, the rocks, and the thorns. It's hard to get them all in my head here. Uh, and then there's the soil that produces 30, and the soil that produces 60, and the soil that produces 100. So I have three, and I have three. Most people are, you know, they're stuck with the four, and they're trying to say, well, is it one bad, three good, or is it three bad, one good? It's really three bad and three good. And just because a soil produces 30, doesn't, it's no knock on it. It's producing something significant. I mean, listen, if you planted one pound of potatoes in the spring, uh, John, and you got 30 pounds back, would you be happy? Yes. He actually planted six pounds of potatoes, am I right? Of the one kind, that's a couple kinds. And he got, in our garden this year, 66 pounds. Well, that's 11-fold. So if, if a soil is producing 30-fold, it's pretty good. 60-fold, wow. 100, wow, where can I get in on that investment? You know, it's amazing what, what, the, what ground can do to produce. Take one 
corn seed, and how many seeds do you get back out of it? Have you ever counted the kernels? On? Come on, somebody has had to do it sometime. Daniel, did you ever? No, you just ate them, right? <laughs> That's what I do. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. But So 30, 60, 90, I think there's really no big difference between them. They're producing fruit. So you have three good and three bad. That's really the picture that's going on here. Six distinguishable results in the planting operation. There's the trampled and devoured. There's the scorched. There's the choked. And then there's the 30, 60, and 100x. Three bad results, three good results. If somebody's spiritual life is trampled, devoured, scorched, and choked, does that sound good? Are you really going to make the case that somebody who is scorched, choked, devoured, or trampled is uh, a good example? No, you shouldn't do that. There's something seriously wrong, and that's what the Lord is saying. If there's no fruit, then there's no evidence of true reception of the word of the kingdom. Herod, these Sadducees, Pharisees, and scribes, no fruit. And they may be the first group. They may be the first ones where the devil just came and snatched the word right away from their, from their hearts. All right, so four levels of, of fruit. Uh, those, the ones choked by thorns had the same result as if they had not germinated at all. No fruit. The ones scorched by the sun had the same zero results as if they had not grown at all. Zero. Um, so <clears throat> there you have it. A good ground produces a good crop. That's where the action is, fruit. So remember, sprouting is not salvation in this picture. Fruit represents true salvation. Um, So I think I've beaten that up enough. We can let that go for now. You also have another character involved in this situation, and that is Satan. Satan plays an important role in the parable and explanation. And it's, it doesn't tell us exactly here how he does his snatching operation. He's outside of the realm of nature, and so his work is supernatural in origin, although he almost always makes use of natural means to accomplish the desired effect. This is a troubling reality. Um, when I say he uses natural means, I kind of went over that fast. Let me back up for a second. He doesn't have to, like, get into your little mind and mess with your brain. He can present to you temptations, things in the world. He knows humanity very well. He's studied humanity for hmm, six, 7,000 years. So I'd say he's an expert. As if you studied anything for six or seven years, you're pretty well an expert, but six or 7,000 years. And he knows how to distract and, and divide and conquer and make things difficult and, and all of this. The troubling reality is you have a guy here who's throwing seed and you have the birds coming along behind him and eating it up as fast as he can sow it in some cases. You have the devil working hard that whenever preaching is coming from the pulpit, Preaching is going out over the airwaves or the YouTube waves. (laughs) The devil is working. The preacher's working. He worked in his study. He's working in the pulpit. You know, when when I go home after preaching a couple times in Sunday mornings, I'm kind of tired. 
it's kind of weird. I just was talking. You'd say, what's so tiring about that? Well, there's something more going on than mere talking. There's a lot of thinking going on, of course, but there's a spiritual work that's happening, we trust. And so the preacher's working, but Satan is also working. That's discouraging, you know, like when you go out and sow a bunch of seed and then it pours rain that night and washes it all away. Oh, you got to go buy more seed and do it all over again once the soil dries. Satan is trying to snatch away the seed as fast as it's being sown. He's trying to stop preachers from being able to talk, trying to stop Bibles from being distributed, trying to shut down their opinions on modern websites, social media things, and all of that. Working overtime, his goal is to make it so that people will not believe to be saved. So if that's his goal, should that be our goal? No. We need to step as far, get as far away from that goal as possible. We need to work hard to counter his attacks on the world. And, I mean, he kind of starts out with an advantage, frankly, because the, the minds of those that believe not are blinded. He, in fact, is an agent in that blinding. They have a veil over their eyes, as it were, so they cannot understand the reading of the Bible, the reading of the Old Testament, in particular in, in 2 Corinthians, where Paul is talking about that. It's a very bad situation. What about the mystery part of this? Well, normally, when you have a kingdom being announced, what happens? The king comes, he conquers everybody, takes over. He doesn't take a vote or, or um, you know, poll the citizens of the country and say, would you like me to reign over you? You know, I, I wonder about what Putin is going to do in in Ukraine. Do you think he's taking a poll and asking the residents of Ukraine what they would like? I highly doubt it because he doesn't care. He has other plans in mind. So normally a king comes, conquers, takes over, no input from the citizens of the country, no offers, no niceties, just victory. I want what I want and I'm going to take it. The kingdom of God is different, at least initially. Very gracious, actually. There will come a time when Christ will enter back into the world affairs and he will take over the governments of the world and he will not ask or take a vote or poll or anything like that. He will take it over. But now for hundreds and hundreds and now thousands of years, he has spread the message of the kingdom by sowers speaking the word of the kingdom, the word of repentance and of grace, of of God's favor in Christ which some recipients reject and some outside forces snatch away so that people will not respond. But this is how Jesus' kingdom is spread. This is the mystery of it. It's not a military takeover. It's not a direct intervention from heaven, as it were, uh, but it's by gentle persuasion. We're spreading the word of the kingdom and raising up a people who will be by and by a mighty ruling army with the Lord when he comes back on a white horse Revelation 19, and conquers the world and takes it back to himself. Take note that the devil is not the only reason, however, that salvation is hindered. In how many of the four cases, let's just go back to four from six, in how many of the four cases is the devil to blame directly? Well, the birds came and ate the seed. The birds represent the evil one snatching the message. So that's one case. 
What happened in the other two bad cases? On the stony soil, he springs up initially, seems to have life, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now, maybe the devil's in, you know, behind that, but it's more directly persecution or troubles arise. Or what about the guy who receives word among the thorns? He, he's the one who hears the word, and, and then the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke it out, and he becomes unfruitful. So you can't blame the devil for everything. You know, you know what the cares of life look like. You know what the deceitfulness of riches feels like. And it too can be a reason that salvation is hindered. And I trust not in our lives. In our lives. Are you choked by the deceitfulness of riches? Um, Are you... uh, focused on the cares of this world or on the ministry of Jesus Christ. So that's the parable of the soils. The good soil is characterized by things we can discern, uh, fruit, and the others we discern other characteristics uh, of them. So let me just focus on the good characteristics, and I'll leave the others for another time. If, If not, you can just take the negation of what I'm about to say as characteristics of the bad soil. But here's the good soil. It hears the message of the kingdom and understands it. The good heart accepts the kingdom message with lasting joy. It endures and adheres to the message in a persevering way. It's devoted single-mindedly to the message. It's not going to get off track by the cares of the world. It has a noble and a good heart. That's found in Luke 8.15, by the way. I drew that in from the parallel passage. And finally, it produces good fruits of various amounts. So I just took all the characteristics that we looked at here and and the negation of the ones that were, you know, the bad characteristics and said, here's what a good heart looks like. Here's what a good response to the Word of God looks like. And so obviously we could close with this application. How about your heart? How about your heart? Is it responsive in the way that the good soil is here? Or is it harder than that, something trampled, scorched, choked, like the parable talks about. I trust that it's on the good side of the ledger. Let us pray. Father, we pray that our our hearts will indeed be those hearts that are like the good soil. And Lord, in any whatever measure of fruit that your people here under the sound of these words are producing, may you multiply that. May you prune. May you fertilize. May you sanctify so that people will be able to grow and produce yet more fruit. If they're at 30, go to 60. If they're at 60, go to 100. If they're at 10, go to 30. Lord, help us to be fruit-producing Christians and not fake people uh, or just barely on life support. We ask for your help in this in Jesus' name. Amen.